welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I have a very special guest with me who I had the privilege of meeting through my friends Nate and John over at the Deep Purple podcast, a show I am a huge fan of. Uh, they have not missed a week, a single episode in uh, going on four years now. It's hard to believe I've known those guys that long. Uh, met them, I think they were only like two or three episodes into their show when uh, we when we crossed paths. Really cool guys. And the Hall of Famer of the show and the one who has met the most people connected with the show in actual real life, which I guess people still do. Rich Shaler. Rich, how are you? Good, Scott. Thanks for having me. I can't believe I finally made the cut. For the Haskin cast, <laughs> it's uh, that's it's, how you know you've made it. It's getting crazy up in here. I'm I'm bringing on the uh, the big guns now. Yeah, I'm glad you you know you got all the uh, all the easy ones done with John. You know, because you know I don't want to. I didn't want to make him look bad. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm sure John does too. <laughs> you know, he he's been uh, probably the 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 one who's been on the most episodes, but he's only come on the show a few times. It's just that the shows go on so long that I break them into multiple episodes, and then that <laughs> that makes it look like he's been on more shows than anyone else. Uh, but no, really cool guys. You guys uh, just met up and saw a couple of Deep Purple shows in the uh, in the Atlantic Northeast. How was that? Uh, it was incredible. We uh, saw them in Philly and we saw them in Jersey. And uh, I love traveling with those guys. We have so much fun. Second time we've met up, you know, to hit some purple shows. And uh, it's just honestly, it's so much fun. If you want to hear all about it, you can go listen to the episode um, where we retell our tales. Uh, but the shows themselves were the first one Simon McBride has played with the band and they were incredible. They were just on fire. I mean, they always are. I, I've rarely, I don't know if I've ever seen a bad show. Obviously there are better shows than others. Mm -hmm. And these were right up there because they were just re-energized as a band. They, you know, new take on stuff and just hearing, you know, Simon put his mark on the songs as well. And it, it made everyone else kind of play different as well. You know, um, we were talking before we came on the air that, you know, you rise to the level of the people you're playing with and they're all at such a high level that they just keep pushing themselves and pushing themselves and pushing each other. Um, it's incredible. Well, you know, I remember when uh, Steve Morris first joined the band and, and I, I was worried. I'm like, I don't know anything about this guy. I don't know if I'm going to like where they go with this. But then I, I took a step back and I thought, Deep Purple is not going to bring someone into their family that they don't think is up to the job. They're not going to get a hired gun in there just to fill in or just to make an album. They would stop if they couldn't find somebody that they thought could really fit the bill. So I put my trust in them then and it paid off. I, I love Steve. Um, I was a little sketchy about his sound on Perpendicular, some of that screechy guitar sound that that we were talking about uh, before we started recording. I call them the squealy wheelies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like Soon Forgotten is is a perfect example just in the very opening, just those those off, right. offbeat notes that he puts in. I'm like, oh, my God, I hate that sound. <laughs> I, I've grown to to it's grown on me now, but in the beginning, I really hated it. And he's changed his tone over the years too. But I kind of had to take the same step back with Simon McBride. I don't know anything about him, but if at this point in their career, they're going to keep going, they're only going to do it if they think it's the right thing to do, if they're happy with it, if it fits, if it's comfortable and fun, uh, because why would they continue on if it wasn't? Right. I, you know, I mean, we just lost Gary Rosington last night from Skinner. Yeah. And I think about that, that, you know, they're, they're just key guys that do you really continue on without them? And I think Deep Purple's done a good job of over the years of like, okay, bringing in people that helped the legacy or kept the legacy alive. 
Um, and I just, every time I think like, can they, can they recover from that? Can they keep going from that? Steve Morris was one of those. And I, my worry was that Simon McBride was just like a fill-in guy. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's played, he knows the songs like, yeah. And he's a good player. And I didn't, I didn't know if he'd be able to add his own thing to it because I had heard him on the Don Airy live recordings and yeah, he's a great player. He's an incredible player, mm-hmm. but hearing him live now with deep purple, I, I have zero worries. I have no worries whatsoever. Um, he fit in so well with the band. He added, um, you know, his own stuff, but kept true to the, the deep purple feel and, and, you know, the stuff you want to hear. I love hearing the high, the highway star solo. It's just, it's just one of those things that, it's a perfect solo. Why mess with it? Yeah. You know, and he added a couple little things of his own, but it was, it was great. Um, and not to take anything away from Steve. I, I keep singing, uh, you know, Simon's praises. I loved Steve in the band and I loved him more and more as time went on. Mm-hmm. Um, like he added so much in such a different dimension to the band uh, and just kept pushing him forward. But they started to get a little proggy for me. The last three albums were kind of heavy on the prog. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that they'll come back a little bit from the edge of that and give us a nice hard rock album. And generally when they put a new guitar player in the band or a new members in the band, the, the first record out of the gates is usually a stunner. So that's very that's true. Cool. Very true. And, and I remember um, telling Roger the one time I, I met him because uh, it was on the abandoned tour. And, and I said, you know, what's, what's great is that Steve has really put new life into the older songs. He just plays them with such energy and, and ferocity but he keeps the respect of certain things like people uh, I, I heard john lord in an interview saying um you know people ask him why steve plays like richie and on, on highway star and doesn't do his own thing and it, because that's part of the song that's the history right. now that that's part of it it's not just a personal solo that's the song and so you can you can personalize it to an extent but if you if you didn't play what richie played you'd get crucified by the audience You have to find that line of where you can insert your personality, but also where you have to pay respect to what, what is expected in a way, you know, and I think the real, the real, uh, proof of of how he fits in the band is going to come with a new album, you know, when, when they see how they write together, because look at how much Steve changed their writing. All of a sudden we've got odd time signatures and all these different parts that were thrown in that, that Richie is, um, very straightforward would not have written that kind of stuff. So I don't, I, I think that's going to be kind of the proof of, of where it all lies is when it comes down to how the album comes out. Yep. I don't disagree at all. I think, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see the mix. And one of the things live, and I know this is a pipe dream um, that I really enjoyed was he actually sang some backups on a couple songs that, Oh, that, that have backups in them. Mm-hmm. So, it, but he was able to do that, that dual Gillen harmony that only Gillen can do. Mm-hmm. And it just hearing, it just felt so right. Um, so I don't know if they're gonna, I don't think they'll have him sing on the album. I mean, because why would you, if you have Ian Gillen, right. um, you know, he'll sing all the parts, but maybe they can do some things that are a little more intricate um, where he could actually sing it live with Gillen and, you know, bring it, bring it to life live. That would be nice because they have really, especially on the last couple albums, layered a lot in with vocals, bringing in a choir, 
um, to back up Ian Gillen and having some really soul sounding singers in there mm-hmm. um, that I do think really is missed on stage because it just it isn't as full. It isn't as as rich and dynamic. Um, yeah, that would be interesting to have some more live backups like they did in the beginning with Rod Evans. Yeah, and when Gillen had that, that, you know, so often when he records a song, he does like that dual harmony mm-hmm. and it's always an interesting harmony. But then live, he has to pick one or the other to sing, and it always is a little bit lacking. It doesn't sound yeah. as full, or, or um, so it, being able to put that in would be, I think, adds so much to um, to the live act. Plus, I was saying to the guys on the pod, the Purple podcast, is I wonder though if there's sort of an unwritten rule where Gillen doesn't really want other people singing on stage, mm-hmm. not not because he has a problem with it, but more so he doesn't want to get accused of that Coverdale thing where people are covering his vocals. Right. And, you know, if there's a microphone on stage and he's stepping up to it, you know, I, maybe I'm just making that up out of my own, mm-hmm. my own thoughts on it. But uh, it just seems odd that over the years, I think I've only seen a mic stand on the stage with them two or three times yeah. um, on the, on the perpendicular tour. And I think on the abandoned tour, they had a dual microphone excuse me, dual microphone for uh, Steve and Roger to sing backups. Yeah. And, and Ian will go over the, to them sometimes in the middle of a song if he's, you know, feeling it and he'll, he'll you know, lean in so that Steve can put in a few words or Roger can pull in a, put in a few words. But uh, I think that's more of an in the moment kind of thing. Like, right. ah, let's just do this. It'll be fun. And it's usually a, come on. Yeah, like space trucking. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right now, it's it's great. I mean, growing up with those guys and and them being easily my biggest musical influences, um, I, I feel so lucky to have been able to see them because when I first got into them was before Perfect Strangers. So they, as far as I knew, they were done, and I that I was never going to get to experience that. Uh, and I've seen them so many times live, and you're right, it's never been a bad show. I've I've been to bad venues, but I've never seen them do a bad show, and. Um, it's it's really been amazing to watch the progression since Perfect Strangers and everything they've done since then, um, and and still what they're doing now. And Uriah Heep's newest album is is a huge hit. It's you know still charting, and uh, it's been out over a month now. And maybe it takes being in a band fifty years and and having that history and experience to really start putting out some stuff that breaks new ground and, and is not just a rock and roll album. It's, it's fresh and interesting. You know, I have to wonder if that isn't the case. Oh, we don't let bands. It's not like the old days where you let a band progress two or three albums in before you figured their worth. Now, either you get a hit or you're done. Yeah. We're not going to let you progress as an artist. Very few record labels will, will allow you that. I mean, for what record labels are worth these days, you know, right. grow as an artist or, or, you know, figure out your footing or where you best you know best belong so these bands the legacy acts that have the 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 ability and the um you know they can go in the studio and do what they want to do at this point mm-hmm. it, they're not going to sell a million records no matter what they do most likely so they're just going to go in and do what makes them happy they don't have to say like well what's going to sell what's going to chart so we can make another album right they're going to make another album if they want to make an album, they're not going to make one. If they're not, they don't want to make one. Exactly. Um, it's it's certainly not a financial decision anymore. You know, and it's interesting as I talk to artists who have had, you know, pretty good levels of success, it's mostly because they had success previously. There aren't a lot of bands that are coming out today that are able to cut through the muck of all that's out there and have um, 
you know, find that way to cut through and, and be heard by a lot of people and sell a million records. Most of right. the artists, when I asked them, well, if you started today, if you didn't have your fame and you started today, how would you cut through the noise? And they all say the same thing. I have no idea. There's right. just too much out there now. And, and because there's so little money in it, it's hard to get people to invest in a band to give them that chance in the first place because they're probably going to invest in something that isn't going to cut through, isn't going to get heard. And it's not about how good or bad it is. It's just about fighting through the noise. I went down a rabbit hole last night on Spotify. Um, I saw this clip of a local guy. I'm like, oh, I wonder what he's up to. And I listened to it and it's like a funky blues thing. And I'm like, oh, that was good. And I listened to a few of his things and I went down below and it says, you know, you might also like, and I just started clicking on the names I recognized, but I had never really listened to. And it's like, I liked just about every person I heard it because it was all in that style, mm -hmm. but it all sort of sound the same. And some of these artists have been around since the 60s, 70s. And I'm like, okay, I listen to a lot of music. I know a lot of music and I didn't know any of these people. So all of this existed and millions of people are listening to it, but it never reached me because of, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And, it, and I mean, I think that's the problem with the music business. Now it's like, you just said, it's just overload. Like, unless you have something that's going to push you through that, you know, and I think that's why things like video games and, you know, TV appearances still matter mm -hmm. because it's getting your song in front of people that might make them do what I did last night and go like, Oh, I have to listen to more of that. Yeah. I think a lot of people are discovering bands through their music licensing. You know, I, I found a lot of songs from uh, different shows and movies that I'm like, wow, I really like that song. Who is this band? And I'll go and research them. And I'm like, okay, I like more than just this song or this is the only song I like that I heard. But I think a lot of that is coming from that because it's a way to be seen. You know, you can get on a Spotify playlist, but, you know, with 150 other songs and if they even get to yours, you know, before they change playlists or whatever, it's a, it's a tough thing these days. But uh, I, I have to think that the quality of stuff that Purple puts out would would find a way to cut through just because it's that damn good. I agree that the downside to it is they're extremely difficult to put in a box. Yeah. It's very hard to say what deep purple is because people want to say, oh, they're hard rock. That, that, yeah, sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes they're progressive. Sometimes they're more blues. Right. Sometimes it's a bad, you know, it's, it's what I love about them, mm -hmm. but I think it's what makes it hard for some people to get into them because they don't really know what it is. And I, I know you and I had that conversation when we were together is, my favorite question to ask Deep Purple fans is if you were going to try to introduce Deep Purple to someone who had never heard them, what song do you play for them that that sums up what Deep Purple is in one song? Yeah, it's, it's impossible. It's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. I mean, you could you could go with something like Highway Star and say they're basically a hard rock blues based band and you could play a song like Highway Star and say, Here's their essence. They branch out a lot from this, but here's like a core song that I think sums them up. And I think that would be a reasonable pick. But then you listen to an album like Rapture of the Deep, which is incredibly dry and blues based. And then you listen to an album like Bananas, which is rich and full and lush. And like, yeah, it's they're, they're they're so diverse that it really would be outside of just saying they're they're a a well-traveled hard rock band. Right. You know, I mean. And there's no one else really to compare them to because I don't feel there's anybody else that does what they've done. Yeah. Um, but I think Highway Star, that's a probably 
I've narrowed it down over the years. That probably one of the ones I would say, Mm -hmm. because you have, like you said, the elements, it's the hard drive and rock band. You got Gillen's voice in there, the screams, you've got the neoclassical playing from Blackmore and, and Lord. um, And even a little bit of the, you know, the dual stuff in there, you know, with the Mm -hmm. dual solos. So I think it covers a lot of ground, but you still miss things like, I mean, cause I didn't pick it out until I heard the audio track separated, like the incredible bass playing that Roger Glover's doing during that song. Yeah. Because your brain thinks he's just going dun, 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 dun. But if you listen to it, he's doing these runs throughout the entire song. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I remember hearing that for the first time. I'm like, oh my, how did I not hear that? Right. Um, but it's very, it's very much like the Beatles. Like until you really concentrate on the one little thing, you're like, oh my, he's doing all that in the background because it just paints that sonic picture. Like you're not, you don't have to hear it. It's, it's what it's creating when it is with the whole. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, when I interviewed Graham Bonnet and Bethany Heavenstone, they, they cover a lot of rainbow songs from down to earth in their show. And she said the same thing. She, she had no idea how good of a bass player Roger was until she started learning his parts. And all of a sudden it's like, Holy shit, this guy is <laughs> not just playing rhythm bass. I mean, no. he's a very melodic, very adventurous bass player. For me, it was watching the final vinyl video from Rainbow when they did Difficult to Cure with the orchestra. And um, there's just this transitionary part where Roger kind of stands out. And what he plays is really interesting. And I went, that's such an odd thing for a bass player to play. And then I started going back and listening to what he was really doing. I'm like, holy shit, he's actually all over the place in just about every song. Right. You know, very yeah, rarely, is, um, very other than like the opening of Highway Star is probably the most basic he plays. And that's it. Right. But even that lick is just so I mean, it's such a hook of the song that do 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 do. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, we could go on all day about Roger Glover and yeah. And, and the nice thing about him is he's a bass player. Mm-hmm. And I say that because a lot of guys are failed guitar players who are then bass players. So they right. play bass like they play a guitar. Yeah. Um, but Roger plays bass like a like somebody who's played bass their whole life. Exactly. And uh, I, I remember, um, what was I going to say? Oh, oh uh, Making Love, the end of Making Love from Down to Earth was another one that I thought was a, a really cool thing because I didn't realize he actually plays two different parts at the end. One part, he's just thumping on the beat and then uh, he switches to an alternate and he's actually playing like a rhythmic melody underneath of it. And then he goes back to the straight notes. And I thought, that's genius. It's so simple, but it's genius. It's almost mm-hmm. like he says, what else could I do here that would be interesting with everything he does? You know, and on top yeah, of that, mean, he's, he's just a hell of a nice guy. Well, that doesn't ever hurt. I mean, yeah. I, I again, I could go on all day, but he's just one of the nicest, most thoughtful human beings I've ever met in my life. Absolutely, and it's genuine. It's not. Yeah. It's not an act. It, it's you know. I mean, you know, I, I said it on the on the pod Deep Purple podcast, but you know, when he approaches me, he knows my kids' names. He knows you know what's been going on, or he asks what's been going on, or he's he's very specific um, mm. always to stop uh, when we were backstage at the show this time, he, you know, he said his goodbyes. We gave a hug, gave me a hug and he started to walk away. Um, and he said, you know, and give, you know, give my love to, to, to Julie and the, and the girls. And he started to walk away and he stopped and he came back and he grabbed my hands and he held them and he looked me straight in the head. He goes, no, I mean, give them 
I love and tell them I said hello. Mm -hmm. Like as if to say like, this isn't just a passing thing. I mean this, like make sure this message gets to them. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, it's things like that, that you just know what a good guy he is. So yeah. I'm, I'm always happy when good things happen to him, you know? And, and in the half hour or so that I got to spend with him, I, I never once felt like he, he didn't want to talk to me that I was, that he was obligated because I was in the, the green room or anything like that. I really felt like he was actually enjoying our conversation. And he even said so at the end, um, he said, you know, I hate to go, but I have to catch a plane. Otherwise I, I, you know, love to talk to you more. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely felt the the same. And, you know, Graham Bonnet had nothing but the greatest things in the world to say about him. Uh, my guitar player, Jerry, who knows him, said the same thing. Like, he's just one of the greatest people. And and that makes it even more enjoyable to listen to his work as a musician, as a producer, like all the all the facets that he's played. And speaking of Roger, the reason that, one of the reasons that we're talking about Roger is because we're talking about uh, Gillen and Glover's duo effort, Accidentally on Purpose, from what I understand, and tell me if if your understanding is different, Rich, this album really came about because during the House of Blue Light sessions for Deep Purple, it was a very frustrating recording session. They wanted to just get away and do something fun. And so they they went away, they started writing songs together and came up with Accidentally on Purpose. Is that your understanding of the creation of the album? Yeah, that's exactly it. He, they uh, They were having such a miserable time in the studio. Everything was um hard is just i think the way they described it, just everything was a battle everything was a you know slog nothing was easy and they just wanted to go and kind of record or write songs and record just for fun you know e even if it wasn't going to be anything or amount to anything they just they kind of wanted to just go blow off steam and i guess it just it came very easy because you know their buddies they've written together for years they have such a long relationship together and you know they picked a nice spot nice uh you know sunny sun and fun kind of place and we're enjoying doing diving and, and uh, scuba diving and stuff and and there you had it you know this is what we got and of course this album came out in 88 and you know my memory of the house of blue light was that it was a really good album there's some really good songs on there there are a couple that i'm kind of like uh not a not one of my favorites but there are some real gems like the spanish archer and when I think about, you know, why do they always have to go through these horrible events and episodes and frustrating times to make good music? It's it's a shame coming off of the success of the Perfect Strangers reunion that they were right back to the it's difficult again so quickly. Right. You know, but we I, I think House of Blue Light was a good album. Um, and then this, I, I really enjoy this album that we're about to get into. What are your memories of hearing accidentally on purpose for the, for the first time or getting into it? I was, um, I was still a relatively new deep purple fan. Um, I knew a little bit of machine head before the reunion, like enough to be dangerous, but I didn't know them as deep purple or anything about them or wasn't falling. I was still a big Beatles fan. Friend had an extra ticket to go see the perfect strangers tour. Uh, I lucked into it. I went, and then from that, literally from that minute on, I was just gobbling up everything that was Deep Purple, Deep Purple related. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you know, I had my license of probably a, like, you know, some of our friends, just tons of tapes of everything that I could get my hands on. And going through the record bin one day, I see this cover and I'm like, oh, what's this? Ooh, Gillen and Glover. And this is after uh, House of Blue Light. So I had my, you know, expectations and put it on and went, what in the hell is this? Mm -hmm. And because, you know, as you know, we've talked about on the podcast over the years is 
back then you spent a lot of money, all your money to get an album. You gave it a bunch of listens. You didn't write yeah. it off. Like now I go on Spotify. I don't like something. I'm, I'm I've moved on in 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and I'll never go back mm -hmm. this. You know, it's like, ah, I spent all this money. I think I got it as an import. Like, <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, and I'm I tried so hard to like it. And I just, I, there were songs on it. I hated I'm like, Oh, I can't stand this song. I don't like this. Like, it just didn't land like, you know, a couple like, oh, that's almost deep purple. That's kind of close. And so I kind of got away from it. And then I, I want to say it was when Morse joined the band, I kind of was revisiting stuff and I revisited this and I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? This is freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. Like what a great album this is. Um, and I kind of, it may have even been a little before that, not that it matters to anybody but me, but um, you know, and I just, I got back into it and, and really enjoyed it and see it now what it really is. Like I, I needed to mature. I was still a teenager, you know, and mm -hmm. I was expecting deep purple part two, you know, or Gillen or whatever. And I got that same thing happened with mask. Yeah, I got mask and I was just like, Oh, I thought this was Roger Glover from deep purple. Um, so, it, you know, it'll definitely, if you're a deep purple fan, it'll be a shock to your system. If you're not a deep purple fan and you think you know what deep purple is, it'll be a shock to your system. So. But, and it's an interesting thing to, and I'm, I'm sure I did the same thing. I went into it with that expectation of this is them writing the same kind of music just on their own, the stuff that they can't get through the band they wanted to put out. And, and in a way it's not fair to them to judge it that way because they wanted to get away from the band and do something different. Right. You know, which, which is what they came up with. And um, so going in really with any preconceived notion, even with a band, because a band can take a departure from one album to another, they can experiment, they can do different things. It's almost unfair to us, to ourselves, because we're we're setting it up for failure, but also to them, because we're not giving them the opportunity to do something different. We're expecting a certain thing from them. So it's always interesting to have that. I remember, uh, I think I got a single, I want to say a single cassette or, or maybe a 45 of She Took My Breath Away. And that was my first um, experience with it. And then a, a while later, I went back and got the whole album because I loved the song. But at the time, I didn't have the money to go buying albums. So I, I didn't. And uh, once I went back and got it, um, it was kind of the same thing. It was like some songs I loved, other ones I was like, I'll never listen to this again. But again, over time, as my musical tastes have expanded and grown, I've gone back and learned to really appreciate everything on the album. I'm not a real blues guy. So the bluesier songs on the album are not ones that I typically will listen to. Sometimes I'll skip over them. But there's some real gems on this album, as, as you guys will see. So um, this came out in 1988. When we get to, uh, we'll talk a little bit more, more about it, but uh, the track Lonely Avenue was actually featured in the movie, um, oh shit, what's the movie? Rain, Rain Man. Rain Man, thank you. <laughs> uh, funny enough, I, I went to go uh, last night, I was going to look on and watch the movie and see if I could figure out where the song was at. And then I realized I don't own a copy of it. I thought I had it. Uh, so that was the end of that. And then... Um, Telephone Box, which is one of my favorite songs in the album, actually reached number 15 on the U.S. Billboard, which for uh, an offshoot act is a pretty big deal. That does not yeah, happen very often. That's pretty shocking, to be honest with you, especially that song, too. I mean, I, I don't remember ever hearing it other than when I listened to the album. But yeah. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I used to listen to the radio back then, and I heard, like, She Took My Breath Away would come on every once in a while, but I I never heard Telephone Box except for the album, and I just thought it was an album track. I would have had no idea that it was released and charted, you know? Very strange. But let's get into the the first track on the album. Uh, this one is one of my favorite songs, and and I actually thought that this was the one that was in Rain Man, but it wasn't. This is called Clouds and Rain. Honestly, think that this is Gillen it, some of his best singing. His voice sounds so good, so smooth. Um, it's it's an interesting eighty, very eighty sounding song. Yeah, I, I you kind of took the words right out of my mouth. It, what makes this song for me is Gillen's voice. It's just like you said, it's it's smooth. It's there's no stress behind it. There's no push in the delivery. It's just a very natural sound from his voice um and there was a uh, one of he says in in one of the lines he goes in and now there's no way he wouldn't sing that without pinching it and even going for just a few years because it's a high note he'd yeah. do the in mm-hmm. and he here he doesn't have to do that he wasn't even pushing yeah um it was just a different style of singing for him and i yeah that's honestly that's what sold me on the song is his singing he sounds very relaxed and very natural in this song. And I mean, if you if you think of where he was uh, on on House of Blue Light, um, really Perfect Strangers in House of Blue Light, I think he he's saying very comfortably, you know. And um, I think this album was just a great extension of where he was at the time. It just in his in his absolute prime. Well, with all that touring, I mean, the power that he had, you know. I mean, that his voice is probably in peak condition from all that touring. So. Yeah. And they were still doing Child in Time live at this point, too. So he he still had that full range that he could uh, that he could draw from. Uh, but at the beginning, um, and I, I could be wrong, but it sounded like Roger was playing a fretless on this one. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, it does sound like a fretless, but, you know, was it a, a bass keyboard with a, you know, I don't know. It's hard to tell, but I I wouldn't put it past them. I think, you know, hey, here's something I can experiment with that I don't usually get to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Because, I mean, Purple's music really doesn't um, often lend itself to a fretless bass sound. But this kind of music certainly does. I mean, it's it's really more open palette that uh, you could you could pull a lot from and do a lot of experimental things than, than you can in a rock and roll band. Probably wasn't a uh, fretless Steinbrenner, though, because this hand would go right off the end. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want to be <laughs> doing to that. Stop yeah. it. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever seen a fretless bass without a headstock. No, that's why your hand would slip off. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, I have never played a fretless bass. I'm a very entry-level bass player still. I, I'm getting better. I think the, the new bass I got helped me become a better bass player. But I would love to be able to play a fretless one day because I love the sound of it. The warm tone, that just smooth transition. 
um, definitely something that you don't get on a standard bass. And if you think about like the the Rickenbacker that he plays, I mean, that is just a harsh, harsh edge tone. So it's I'm really sorry, nice. the what? The Rickenbacker. <laughs> the what? <laughs> Inside joke, folks. Yeah. Uh, yes, the Rickenbacker has the Rickenbacker. quite a uh, has quite a uh, its own tone. Yeah, you know. But honestly, I have played a fretless bass, just messed around on it. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's really hard. Yeah, because you have to be precise with your finger. You know, with a regular bass, you just have to be within the fret. Yeah, with the fretless, you have to be right on where the fret would be, or it's going to be slightly sharp, slightly, um, slight, slightly flat. And yeah. really, the only person I've seen do it with any success in rock is Tony Franklin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a part of his sound. I mean, I, I liked it in the firm, but I'm not sure that I would have liked the firm any less if it had just been a regular bass. Yeah, I have to agree with that. And and I still haven't gone back and listened to their second album, but their first album is that that's a gem for me. I, I absolutely love that. And the bass tone for me. Uh, yeah, I, I can't say I would have liked it less if it had been a straight bass, but the fact that it was a fretless bass, that just makes that album so much better. Well, that's what makes it sound like The Firm and not just a bunch of other rock bands. Right. That and that really interesting drum sound that they got on that album. I I don't know exactly how to explain what they did with it, but it's really unique. Sounds like they recorded it in a stadium and mic'd it up or something because it just has that really, you know, reverb sound with live sound. And a huge bass drum. Absolutely huge bass drum. Uh, Love that album. I've really got to check out the second. I, I remember hearing it and not liking it. And I just never went back to it after that. And I really should it's give more, that another chance. It's more polished, but mm-hmm. it's it's really good. We'll do that next time we get together. That sounds it's like a, a good you, idea. <laughs> you'd really enjoy it. Yeah. All right. I'll Anything do- with Paul Rogers is good. So, well, I mean, what it worked with Zebra because I, I only knew two Zebra songs, which I loved dearly, would listen to them all the time, but for some reason, never listened to anything else they did. And I don't know if it was that fear that I'm not going to like anything else and it'll ruin these two songs. And I had put them on such a high pedestal that I was afraid of doing that. But if you love two songs by a band and you only know two songs by a band, why the hell wouldn't you listen to more by that band? Uh, You know, I'm not even sure I know Zebra, although if it's who I think it is, I think I actually know the guy who, uh, one of the guys who was in the band. Oh, really? Um, yeah. He plays with a band called the Young Dubliners now. And I want, were they out of like Kansas City, Kansas area? I'm not sure. But All they right. did. I'll look uh, it up while we're talking. They did Who's Behind <laughs> the Door in the 80s and um, Tell Me What You Want. Were there, yeah, were there two big hits? I So until I talked to him as a friend, he mentioned that he was in a band in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he told me the name, but I looked him up and uh, it might not be the band. Well, wow, that's a letdown after all that, isn't it? <laughs> I'll, I'll think of who it was, but and I went back and listened. I'm like, wow, you guys are really good. Mm-hmm. And I actually recognized a couple of the songs. Yeah. So for some reason I thought it was, um, zebra, zebra, but mm-hmm. I don't, I, now I'm thinking it isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I challenged myself to actually go back and do a review of the, of their first album, which is the album that those two songs came from. And I found, I really enjoyed the whole thing. And I thought, why have I cheated myself out of this, this whole time, you know, and this album accidentally on purpose is kind of like that because I, I listened to it. There was some stuff I loved, some stuff I didn't like. And then like you, I just kind of put it on the shelf and went back to my comfort food. Let, let me listen to Perfect Strangers. Right. Let me listen to, you know, uh, Machine Head and whatever. And I don't know why I did that, but I, I really regretted it. So I'm I'm 
really happy to go back and revisit this album. Clouds and Rain, total hit for me. Yeah, me too. It's a it's a mood song too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a you know sitting out on the back deck on you know as the as the sun's going down, kind of just mellowing out to it, or yeah, you know, uh, sitting on the beach. I just it's uh, it's just got that mood, and I think that's the other reason I went back to it and enjoyed it was. Um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, you know, was trying to get into Deep Purple, but, you know, it was, we're working at it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff is more accessible to her and she enjoyed. And sure. Well, I mean, so it's, it's, it would a, go in the car. It's a little bit more commercial, I, I would say, uh, more, you know, very radio friendly. But uh, to me, it's what I like to call a song I can drift away with. I could just put the headphones on, just enjoy it, not have to think about it too much or or really analyze it. Um, which I just naturally do as a composer, but right. just to just to be able to put it on and just close my eyes and listen and enjoy. That's that's Absolutely. the greatest thing to me. Uh, our next song on the list is called Evil Eye, and it is not the uh, Ying Wee Malmsteen song. It is uh, <laughs> it is Gillen and Glover. The only thing that this is missing is the Rocky montage. <laughs> this yeah, I don't is, get that. On, I don't get that on this one. It, it's, it's, it, does give it's, me, it does give me a bad shabubi, though. <laughs> it's kind of tribal. <laughs> you know, it, it, the, the backing vocals in there, and it's, it's a really interesting tone for the vocals, too. But right. it's, it, it's uh, kind of tribal, which I like. There's a, there's a little bit of um, world music feel for for 80s to this album and and i like that we'll get to that with like cayman island which is a very you know ethnic sounding song but uh i i like the feel of this but it's weird because it goes like from tribal then it goes to this very 80s synth bass sound uh i don't even know if roger's playing on this well he's probably playing all the keys yeah but i don't think he's playing an actual bass at least not in this part yeah i'm I'm not good at that. I'll I'll take your word for it. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a cool song though. I, I I like the groove to it. Um, I I like the movement. And this it's one thing that's fairly common on the non-blue songs on this album is that there's a synth movement that just like there's just notes, 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 notes. Not fast played, but just consistently keeping it moving forward. Da 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 da. That kind of thing where uh, it's not a melody as much as it is a melodic rhythm. Right. Yeah, no, I like it. It's got, like you said, it's got that tribal feel. The uh, oh, oh, oh is definitely the hook of the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the reason I was a little lost in thought there, there it, it a, a, a deep purple song popped into my head where they clearly reused part of it. And I'm just trying to formulate it in my head, but it's hard when you're mm. thinking about other songs. And uh, it's the uh, oh, Silver Tongue. Um, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I'd have to sing through it, but there's that that right before the 
the bridge there. Mm-hmm. I think they they kind of use that same all oh, the world is traveling down. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think it's that part of the song right there. Mm-hmm. No, I would absolutely um, agree with that. Love that song, by the way. So not to bring things to a screeching halt, but the name of that band I was trying to think of was Shooting Star. Oh, Shooting Star. Okay. Yeah, so they were a good not, band. Yeah, I you know, it's one of the ones I went back. It's not my uh area of favorite music. I'm not a big arena rock guy, but um boy, they were way better than like I had I thought they would be, I guess. I mean, I, I like the young Dubliners, their Irish rock, which is nothing like any of that. But mm-hmm. um, but boy, yeah, I went back and it's like, holy smokes, these are really good. I, you know, listened to all all the albums and there were definitely some standout tunes. And do you remember what instrument he played? Uh he was the uh fiddle player or violin player. So they're almost like Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a little prog rocky, and I know he played some keys too and did some singing. Very cool. I'll have to go back and check them out. I, I know I liked them, but I can't off the top of my head think of right anything. But but it's like you said, like and, and John does this on the Deep Purple podcast all the time. He's like, that reminds me of something. And then like, I can't think of what it is. But when you're focusing on one piece of music and trying to hear another piece of music at the same time, that's that's hard. It's almost no impossible. Doubt. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, our next song up uh, is is one that I absolutely love. It was the first one that I heard on this album. It's called She Took My Breath Away. I would absolutely hate those keyboard voices that are coming in. I mean, that would just kill a song for me. But for some reason, I really like it in this song. Yeah, I, you know, this one I like now. I definitely didn't to begin with. But mm-hmm. even just listening to it just now, I went, okay, Rich, you're the producer of this album, not Roger Glover, which would be stupid. But let's just say I was. <laughs> um I would immediately say, all right, good take, guys. I like it, but I'm not, I don't like island feel songs. I am not a sun and fun guy. So, like anything with marimbas or, you know, even too much reggae, I'm not, you're not selling me on it. So, this one kind of goes into that category for me. So, if I put on my producer hat, I go, all right, good take. Now, Roger, just pick up the acoustic and Ian sing it exactly like you sang it. And Roger, just give me some just, easy strums and maybe some tapped harmonics, um, you know, behind me. And, and I think it would be a completely different song. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just, you know, instead of obviously the upbeat chorus, um, I think it would, it would give a whole different feel to that song and make it more of a, you know, making it more of a ballad. Um, and I think it, I would have liked it better personally, um, mm-hmm. but I still like the song. I certainly, you know, one of the go-tos on the album. Yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. I I like how gently Ian is singing the verse. Um, it's not something we get to hear him do a lot. So it's kind of a unique flavor for his voice. 
uh, I I love the bass. Again, I'm going to say that on this song, it sounds like a fretless. Um, it's just those those transitions are just far too smooth for it to sound like a fretted bass. Right. Uh, I I love the feel of it, and despite the fact that I would normally hate that kind of keyboard voicing. Um, I love the simplicity of the song and I love how the verse is really gentle. And then the, the chorus comes in or what passes for a chorus and the music just kind of kicks in and gets all crazy again. You know, um, it's, it's a really interesting way to write a song to drop back so far on the verse and then kick it up so high on the chorus. Um, the other thing I like is just their use of delays, the the ping pong delay between the the left and right ear on the shaker and, and the percussion. Um, I think it's this album really shows a I would say a a great use of the available technology at the time, which Deep Purple as a as a rock band really didn't get into that too much. Um, they did say that House of Blue Light they felt was a a, a leap forward in in terms of using the studio technology with using like triggered drums for unwritten law and stuff like that. But uh, this album, I think they really utilized the electronic advancements that they had in music doing things like this. Uh, so I can appreciate it on that level. But again, I, I have to say it's once again, the vocals that that do it for me yeah. on this one. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Same with vocals. That's why I say I love hearing him sing that way with maybe just a nice acoustic guitar or something. Mm -hmm. It would have just had a whole different feel to it. Uh, but then again, maybe you wouldn't notice the, the softness of the voice. Yeah, the album as a whole, there's no mistaking that it was recorded in the 80s. Yeah. You know, you go, yeah, this is an 80s album. But I think the production is above what most 80s stuff is. It 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 although it's drenched in the keyboard sounds and some of that, I don't it doesn't have the the sonic quality that a lot of the 80s stuff does. It's not as big. Yeah, and um, this, or overdone big. And this was getting towards the end of the 80s. This came out in 88. So I think they were they were starting to get away from that really overproduced early to mid-80s synth sounds. I think right. they kind of learned how to make it work better. By this point, uh, I definitely like the production on this album where uh, it's kind of a surprise because you would expect it to sound awful with all the synths and program percussion and everything. But it actually does sound sonically. The, this right. album sounds really good. And the and the vocals is what really sells it. I mean, yeah. and, and the way he recorded it, I would like to I mean, I'm sure 99.9 percent .9 of it's just Gillen's voice. But I think it's also the way he was mic'd. Mm -hmm. um, and and mixed as well. Yeah, and and, and not to uh, shut Roger out of this one, but I really love the bass playing on this song too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> right. It's okay. You know, for for a guy who could do what he yeah. can do, uh, should have brought should have brought in Tony Franklin. <laughs> I'm still trying to play that that short bass solo from Pictures of Home, and I don't know that I'll ever get that down. Uh, our next song on the list is called Dislocated. I am not a fan of synth brass. <laughs> I never will be a fan of synth brass. 
I I love the rhythm of this. It's it's got such a cool feel. There's like a slight flange on the synth, but not a noticeable flange. It just just enough to throw it off of, of being a straight note. Uh, this one I really dig. I, I dig the feel of this one. What do you think? Uh, I like it a lot, and I don't think that was synth brass though. No, I think those are actually guys playing. Yeah. Oh, okay. Definitely, definitely in the break because that's my favorite part of the song is that that horn break in the middle of the. So I was having a conversation about this album with Roger one time, and I said that that's one of my favorite parts of the album, and and you know I said I can clear clearly that came from you, like it's just it's so you, and he he smiled and laughed and said, yeah, that no that was Ian. Oh wow, <laughs> which yeah I was like really he's like yeah I see come on you bust my try he's like no because he, he came up with that horn break and I'm like I all right wow. I, I, I don't really think of Ian that way as being like, you know, having those kinds of ideas, but mm-hmm. clearly, clearly he does. So that I love that horn section. And I, that was one of the things we were talking about, because in the last song, it has the uh, soprano sax at the mm-hmm. end. Right. Yeah. I I hate that. I hate single horns and songs. Mm-hmm. It's with, with almost without maybe Penny Lane and the trumpet or the the, the the high piccolo trumpet sound mm-hmm. that's okay but for the most part like one saxophone one sopranos i don't like it but horn section love it and that's why i like it in this one it's got that 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 powerful horn break for me that's the best part of the song and gillen's dual vocal like we were talking about earlier that i don't know how he does it man i'm a singer and i i can't sing to myself like that like doing that kind of harmony mm-hmm. so tightly uh, it's 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 I mean, and that's, you know, I'm sure there was some computerized editing back then, mm-hmm. you know, the first forms of it, the cakewalk stuff. But for the most part, you had to nail it when yeah. you were recording it. Oh, yeah. And I mean, now you could just you could exactly replicate the track and just slide it over slightly exactly. and cause that, you know, old tape delay sound and, and all that. But yeah, you had to be able to play your instruments back then, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I, I'm going to have to listen to that again and, and see, cause I always thought that was a synth brass because I didn't think they had the budget to hire. Well, I think know, they list players, a, but I think they list a few horn players on it. Oh, do they? Okay. Um, uh, I know definitely for that, for the soprano sax, obviously, but I don't know I'd have to go back and look. So uh, it's interesting. Whenever I hear this song, something that comes to mind is Huey Lewis in the news. It has a Huey Lewis feel to the song. Um, now they have, they've been known for a good brass section. Are you a fan of them at all? I do actually, I do. I, I like Huey Lewis. I mean, they're a little too commercial, but I mean, they, I, you know, I, I do like them. Um, you know, obviously the stuff they did for back to the future, how can you not love those songs? Oh, yeah. They just bring you right back to the moment. Right. Um, you know, back in time. Uh, but I'm trying to think of the, it was an earlier hit that I've, I've just always loved. Not, I want a new drug before that working for a living was good. Yeah, God, what's the one I'm trying to think of? I think nah, that was the, that was the first song I knew from them was working for a living back in like the early days of MTV, where all of a sudden I was exposed to all kinds of music, you right. know, because I only had like two radio stations in Detroit that I listened to. And uh, once MTV came out, it was like access to all kinds of stuff I would have never heard on those two stations. Um, but yeah, no. this this has that feel. Uh, uh, what's the. um Oh, it's going to come to me. I can, I can hear it. Do you believe in love? It has that. That's not, that was the one I was trying to think of. Okay. That's yeah. The I, I like. There's like that slight flange on the electric piano 
and it has that same feel as this synthesizer. I think that's why yeah, I, I make that. that correlation. Then, of course, the horns are are very reminiscent of Hugh Lewis. This is not a song they would have ever done, no. but it, it feels in their general atmosphere. Yeah, I don't think his phrasing sensibilities would be able to do a song like this. Yeah, he's very the, straightforward the, as a singer. Yeah, the phrasing that Gillen's using, even though it's a little rigid, you know, on the kind of, you know, on the beats, the da 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 it mm. the harmonies are what make you feel like it's more flowing and kind of snaking around. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I've always loved about Gillen is it's it's not just his voice, it's his phrasings, the way where he chooses to start and end. Uh one of my favorite lines of his ever comes from this song uh, Smooth Dancer on Who Do We Think We Are. Um it's as it's going getting ready for the second chorus, that line, I think you're crazy, you're two time in ways they don't bother me none. He starts it so late. And it just comes in so awkward, but it works so well at the same time. Like that delivery is genius. Right. And that's the kind of stuff I expect from him because he just does that naturally. And I think that's just something too, when it's Gillen and Glover together working on things, because especially with Ian Gillen, Ian Gillen band does something I dislike and, and John, John Matola from the Deep Purple podcast, give him a shout out. um, Also says this is that, he when he follows like a guitar line or a melody line and he kind of just mimics it and sing you know for the melody mm-hmm. i hate when he does that and he tends to do it a lot more with those bands but you notice anytime he works with glover he doesn't do that that's true and i don't know whether it's just the way the, the way they write together or i or maybe roger's coming up with some of the melody for him or with him and you know i know he i know they do quite a bit of the lyrics together but um yeah so i, I that's I the point I was trying to make is lost, but I, I <laughs> that you know, it, like this is a good example of just taking the melody in a completely different direction instead yeah. of following the you know, he could have sang something along with the you know, that 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 he's doing the des- dislocated, mm-hmm. but it's still moving around the rest of the song, right? He he creates his own instrument out of the vocals as opposed to just singing along to the melody, he really creates his own space as a vocalist. And uh, that's something I've always loved about him, because when you especially the first time you hear a song that he's on, you just don't know what you're going to get. It's not like I could listen to a band like Huey Lewis and I know how the vocals are going to go from the time I hear the verse. Here's going to be the structure. Here's the chorus. Okay, here's going to be the structure with Gillen. You just don't know. Guitar solo will be at three minutes. Oh, no, wait, that's Deep Purple. (laughs) That's Deep Purple. Yeah, (laughs) But yeah, I think this is a, a great song. I absolutely love it. 